It's the clip show, everyone. 2020 year in review. It's time for a bunch of fast five that all you people who didn't listen to the full show and missed out on these beautiful writing ranting, you didn't get to hear because you ducked out early. Here are the top five fast fives from each of your favorite hosts, Mitch, Brian, Nathan. Boys, what do you think about this year? How has it been so far for you? Best year ever, just from one <laughs> one blessing to the next, all year long. <laughs> both both for myself personally and for our country as a whole. I, you know, I've had a lot of experiences this year. Some squishy, some kind of prickly, uh, but most of the time with Uber Cinco, it's been goddamn smooth, and so I'm thankful for that. And I'm ready for 20 to 21 to just charge forward. And bring us more blessings. So um, here, here it's all all glory to God, right? Um, <laughs> all glory, all glory to to the God of Ubers. Um, all glory to the to the guy who or lady or thing that created five. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, I'll I'll say this: Uber Cinco saved my life during quarantine easy that's true so thank you guys for going on this ride all of us together it's been wonderful i agree it's been a lot of fun this year especially dusting off the old uh i call them like the little the little lifting weights <laughs> doing, yeah. is like doing creative little one pound dumbbells just got to keep us yep. going yep and uh i've learned more about you guys too which is very nice um i didn't know about uh, the the uh, germination or the 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 starting point of some of Nathan's uh, knife woes. <laughs> know that now. Um, didn't know Brian again. His fantasy, three thousand square feet, partially finished basement. Um, not because he couldn't think of something to put down there, but just he's got to keep it clean. So uh, I heard something funny over Christmas. Uh, my dad, my, my sister said something about like, dad, are you getting emotional? Like listening to this or watching this on TV? He's like, I get emotional listening to Uber Stink Coach. Leave me alone. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. I here at uh, Danny's uh, parents, family house in Pennsylvania, they have uh, a TV in the kitchen and in the family room. And so when you wake up early with a new puppy that we have, I have time alone in the kitchen and Elf is on all the time on stars this season. And I cried by myself in the kitchen like four times this season watching Elf just at different points of the film. So uh, I've also been emotional recently. So So you're that guy in the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) They they, they come in, they catch me drinking coffee and eating cookies just like (laughs) – uh, and I and I have to promise them it's not like a food related issue. It's an elf related issue. So they're gonna come in and think yeah. like the dog died on your watch. <laughs> Mitch, what'd you? Do? No, uh, and yeah, that little guy's also provided me a lot of joy. Um, I re- I taught him how to do stairs, and I taught him how to kiss, and I taught him how to do paw, 
and I chased some deers with him. Deer yesterday with him it was very fun through the woods. So you've taught me the same tricks, and I'm also grateful. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Hey, now what's the difference for you guys from now from when we started this thing? Ooh, different brain wise. Um. I feel like I got something to look forward to every week now, which is kind of nice. It's always just yeah. like, hey, no matter what, get together with my pals. And even if it's not a good show, we're still going to have fun. So. Wait, did we do shows that were substandard? I don't remember that. Not by our measure. Everything we do is gold. <laughs> uh, well, for me, it's uh, it's been cool uh, picking up more listeners as we've rolled along, hearing some nice things from the folks out there who've... Uh, been jumping on the bandwagon and uh, you know tell your friends smash that like button we'd like to see a few more new faces in 2021 build on all the fun we had this year in 2020 hearty wom that hearty wom and especially if you get back to work and you don't have time for podcasts anymore you make sure to keep us in your life yep you have to it's, it's our that's what the wom's for it. yeah uh, people are yeah. sick of hearing about modern us i say we give them past us and have them enjoy this, the best of the Fast Fives, an Uber Cinco clip show. And now moving right along, because the host gets to have a little fun too, of course. I will give you my top five list, my Fast Five. And I have to apologize because earlier I made a mistake. I, I misread the copy. Um, it's not top five ways to live for Christ's sake. It's um, top five ways to live, for Christ's sake. <laughs> um, and I totally, I, I, that's my bad. So here we go. Number five. <laughs> when you're laying down your head to rest at night, leave a liter mason jar stuffed with ice, a lime wedge, and whatever water that fits. In the morning, you got a guzzle bucket ready to tell your body you're serious about today. Number four. When alone, sprint most places. You'll be thanking your hamstrings and glutes next time you catch a glimpse of yourself from behind in the mirror. All right. Number three, when you hang up from a phone call with your mother, immediately schedule another in your calendar app and send an invite to her Hotmail account. That'll signal to her you're serious about maintaining the relationship. <laughs> Number two. Buy gold, right? Obviously. But actually, don't stop there. Buy other metals too. Estate sales are an excellent source for silver. And number one, fast fives on top five ways to live, for Christ's sake. If you still can, attend an Ivy League university and keep on track for graduating magna cum laude while maintaining a leadership post in one of the top five student organizations on campus. Then when you're a semester or two from finishing, drop out and start a company that will grow to enjoy a multi-billion dollar valuation. And that should provide a pretty nice living. Thank you very much. That's the fast five, top five ways to live for Christ's sake. Uh, I, I, need to know, I need to know, Mitch, sure. where's, where's the last place you, you sprinted while you were on your own? <laughs> oh, uh, it's just up and down the block for, uh, for, for good exercise here. Um, uh, Wayne, Wayne Avenue here in Chicago on the North side. So, um, I, I also noticed you didn't mention his myrrh as one of the things you need to collect to, to <laughs> invest in. That is true. If you know what myrrh is and you understand the value, go for it. Uh, but I, 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 I just can't get a handle on that market myself. So. <laughs> Apple products that didn't make it past R&D, starting with number five, is the Apple Highlight. Before the iPad Pro and the Apple Pencil and well before even there was an iPad, there was the Apple Highlight. 
This device was magical as they shrunk a scanner into the size of a highlighter, making it easy for students to run the device over some text and have it appear in their word processor. Things went horribly wrong, though, when they couldn't get it to stop translating basic words into racial slurs. Number four <laughs> is the Mac sack. This is what happens when you build products in the bubble that is uh, Palo Alto. <laughs> yeah, don't do it. Don't do it. A lot of misogyny, too. Uh, number four, the Mac sack. S-A-C is how it's spelled. Oh, sure. Uh, despite its unmarketable name, the Mac sack was a useful tool designed for school gyms. Made from precise memory nylon, the net-like device could detect how many balls were inside it. And if all the soccer balls weren't returned at the end of gym class, the net would start to flash red, alerting the teacher that there was school property missing. Development failed as two kids crawled inside the Mac sack, their bodies matching the weight and volume of the soccer balls precisely, engaging the drawstring to retract instantaneously, causing rope burn, some broken ribs, and death. (laughs) (laughs) Number three, (laughs) the irate. Uh, the iRate was uh, expected to be the future of point-and-shoot cameras before the iPhone and DSLR boom of the late 2000s. Uh, the iRate was a mobile internet camera device and social media platform that allowed users to snap photos and immediately upload them for rating online. The iRate ironically made developers furious when the beta site became clogged with photos of users rating each other's massive dumps. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, the MacBook Amateur. (laughs) You've all heard of the MacBook and the MacBook Pro, but the MacBook Amateur was meant to be a mid-range device that bridged the price gap of the existing product line. In order to drive the price down, Apple hired amateurettes, as they called them, folks with limited computer assembly experience to run the production line. The tagline, for amateurs, by amateurs, ensured not a single computer was assembled alike. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, there's number one Apple product that didn't make it past R&D, the I Gotcha. A A pilot program where Apple was tasked with creating a chipset for low energy usage and high data output led them to test their creation in a series of nanny cams. The tech worked perfectly as it only needed to be charged quarterly while it maintained a high definition video stream to your iCloud account throughout the duration. I Gotcha was intended to be marketed as a safety blanket for parents, but the program was shut down when a purchase order was leaked to the public. 300 units to NBC Universal for Chris Hansen's To Catch a Predator. (laughs) So today is top five Brad Pitt hairs, I'm calling Mm. it, okay? Number five, meet Joe Black, Brad Pitt. Um, now on the film version, of course, on YouTube, we'll have, uh, some, some photos up, but it was bleached blonde. It was, uh, 1998. It was very of the times. It's flouncy. It's voluminous. Um, there's a great deep side part. Um, you know, uh, he's, he's a classy young man in this film and maybe it was a wig. I don't know. Okay. So number four, Troy Brad Pitt. Back to blonde, baby. Um, he's got so much hair on his head in this film, but none on his face, his abs, his back, or his buttocks. What's going on there? I don't know. Um, the, the movie sucked, uh, but also his hair laid like a lion who is just shampooed. I like that very much. Okay, number three, <laughs> Snatch Brad Pitt. This is a return to, to natural color form, baby. Uh, the scruff finally matches the hair up top, and he pairs it in this movie with a cool leather bowler. And who the F can pull off a leather bowler? Almost no one but Brad Pitt. Okay, number two, <laughs> Legends of the Fall, Brad Pitt. This is when, this is the longest it's ever been in a film. There's luster to this. Um, 
it's been weathered. You know, he, he's outside a lot. He's he's working ranches. He's going to war in this movie. Uh, it's just, it's a mane. It's shoulder length. Um, and the facial hair grows along with him throughout the film. Uh, a nice um, marker of, uh, of aging. Um, and his character Tristan encounters a grizzly, a bear, not once, but twice, when one of the matchups. Spoiler alert. Um, and number one. <laughs> Brad Pitt hair, Thelma and Louise Brad Pitt. This is a classy <laughs> mullet. Um, this is what rocketed him to fame. Again, great volume, not a surprise. Uh, and he has a little bit of a shadow goatee, but it's nothing overt in this one. Um, but what you can see is the future and that uh, beautiful quaff. And boy, was it bright. So here we go. Top five movies that were pitched under the title of another movie. Yeah. So uh, these, these all, they... They found out there was a mo- another movie already titled that, so they had to they had to change it last minute. But. <laughs> okay. So this one's this one's uh, this was an, an older one. So uh, they came in and they said uh, to the studio heads, like, "All right, we're we're going to shoot this black and white. It's going to be very innovative because we've got this young director, an actor named Orson Welles, and uh, he's it's going to be great. Uh, he's going to play this journalism magnate. It's going to chart his entire rise and fall in this tragic story. We're actually going to open." on his deathbed and he's going to say rosebud but it's only at the end we realize that rosebud rosebud was a lost or a symbol for lost innocence it was his sled it was all about his favorite childhood toy so we're going to call it toy story (laughs) 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 all right and number four all right so there's this band this from england they're called spinal tap and so this band spinal tap they're one of the loudest bands in england that's what they're known for uh, they're not necessarily good, but they're loud and they keep breaking up and there's uh, a lot of infighting and drama, classic rock and roll soap opera. But the guys in this really loud band, uh, Spinal Tap, they're they're just they're really tight. They have a bond. So they always end up getting back together. We're going to call it extremely loud and incredibly close. <laughs> 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 All right. So we've got these four guys from Jamaica. <laughs> and they're they're really fast. So someone gets the the bright idea to have them uh, race in the bobsled in the Winter Olympics. So they've never seen snow, but uh, you know they're so fast. They figure they can make it work. And and then they have uh, they have a lot of infighting along the way. You know some drama, some uh, some tension, and they get mad at each other and make each other angry. And we're gonna call it the Fast and the Furious. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's these are these last two are a stretch. <laughs> All right, so uh, we're gonna do this this biopic of uh, the rock band Queen, and so we're gonna see their rise to the top of the charts, and we're gonna see them jamming a lot. And you know that song Bohemian Rhapsody yeah, is such a jam, one of the classic jams. And uh, did you know Brian May, their guitarist, has a PhD in astrophysics? one of the world's leading experts on outer space. So we're going to call it Space Jam. <laughs> I was curious where the, where the fuck you were going to take that one. That's, but honestly, that's not that's a, as that's good. I like I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Yeah. Uh, well, here we go. Nathan, Number Nathan, one. Nathan, you are blowing me to the moon right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, here, th- this last one, they were so confident in this one that they, they just went straight to pitching the sequel. So they actually did a whole TV series and a first movie, but they just they pitched the sequel. All right. So it's about these four women and they live in New York City and they have a lot of sex. All right. And but the women, they're all total babes. 
Uh, but they meet all these men, and these men are just, they're real pigs, they're real swine, just bad behavior. Uh, but they still have a lot of sex in New York City with these total babes. So we're going to call it Babe 2, Pig in the City. <laughs> <laughs> Failed Taco Bell menu items. Ooh. Number five. The Chalupa Changa. Your typical shredded chicken chalupa, which already has a fried pita-like tortilla shell, is lathered in lard, flour, eggs, and of course, Doritos Locos taco shell breadcrumbs before it heads to the fryer for another deep fry. Served in a nacho trough, the chalupa changa was finished off with ground beef coating from the nearest meat hose. It was removed from the menu when breathing in its scent caused heart attacks. Oh my God. That sounds, I would eat that. I would absolutely Me too, do that. me that, too. That sounds like a Minnesota State Fair delicacy. Absolutely. All right. The number four, the Alexander Graham Nachos Bel Grande. <laughs> <laughs> this failed menu item stemmed from a partnership with Warner Brothers, a 1993 marketing campaign for the Sylvester Stallone, Sandra Bullock, Wesley Snipes vehicle, Demolition Man. Of course, as we all know, the plot reveals Taco Bell is the winner of the franchise war, standing as the last remaining restaurant chain in 2032. Meant to symbolize the past with the fictional future, the Alexander Graham Nachos Bel Grande was to be history trivia wrapped in film marketing, but was removed from circulation when racist protests rang out in the streets of Americans refusing to learn history from Mexican food. Oh, how far we've come. (laughs) Number three, the beefy 23-layer burrito. Chicago Bulls, second three-peat. Michael's back, and so is the beefy 23-layer burrito. With a diameter of 11 and a half inches, this girthy monstrosity could barely be held, let alone eaten. You would think its size led to its downfall, but no. Patrons got bored when the ingredients just started repeating themselves after the 10th layer. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, the spicy grilled cheese vegetarian black bean quesarito gordita roll-up supreme. I have no joke. It failed because it's vegetarian. (laughs) And number one, the triple brunch wrap supreme. We start with tortillas milled in an aftermarket Little Caesars dough press, giving us enough surface area to pack in the brunch essentials. And everything bagel with cream cheese, bacon, avocado toast, biscuits and gravy, a blintz, bacon, cinnamon toast crunch, a strawberry Nutella crepe, eggs, Bacon, Canadian bacon, (laughs) ham off the bone, a raspberry scone, a blueberry muffin, bacon, pancakes, bacon, hash browns, bacon, and a single drop of salsa. All of this with bottomless Mountain Dew Baja Blast mimosas. And although this menu item failed, the mimosas were the foundation for the modern Taco Bell cantina. (laughs) So there. Fast five, passive aggressive computer errors. Here we go. Number five. When rewriting uh, your resume for the fifth time in two years, Microsoft Word decides to serve up a friendly pop-up. Are you sure you meant to fill this shit with blatant lies? (laughs) (laughs) Then that fucking paperclip man shows up and gives you a better way to falsify your resume and you can't even do this right, so how the hell are you supposed to land that job (laughs) Number four. 
when cropping that perfect photo you took on vacation in Photoshop to post on your Instagram with four followers, you receive the following error. Would you like to edit more than just selfies? Deep down, you know she's right. You take the photo. You take the photo of you in a sombrero and trash it, opting for a sunset landscape instead. Number three, when filling your Amazon cart with groceries because you're too ashamed to go out in public after gaining your quarantine 55, you decide to stock up on everything just in case when. Did you mean to add these condoms? Your phone records show no interactions with females in 17 months and they are the wrong size. May we suggest a Trojan minis for your below average shaft? You sigh and add them to your cart anyway. Number two. While taking the last error message's advice, you sign up for a dating app to get yourself back out there. You fill it with the basic things you like to do, your favorite movies, and a genuinely lovely sentiment about enjoying life with a significant other. And then... Your depressing description has matched 487 other lonely men in your area. Here are sites available on the World Wide Web where you can hire writers that will make you sound more like a man and less than a fucking sad chode. So, you have to hire somebody else to make you lovable to everybody else. And the number one passive-aggressive computer error. After months of trying to succeed, you've gotten a new job that pays all right. You've met someone and things are going well. And you and your lady are going out strolling and you're getting a bit peckish. So you take out your phone to make a reservation. Siri, what are some restaurants near me with a table for two? You mean one. No, no, no. I mean two. Are you sure? Wouldn't you rather eat somewhere cheaper by yourself? Listen to me, you electronic slut. Put in my goddamn (laughs) reservation for two at the nearest romantic restaurant. Now! My latest contact tracing results show a female near you has left. Your watch reads an elevated heart rate and perspiration. It's all for the best. Dinner will now be cheaper as your checking account is already overdrawn. Enjoy your Big Mac and thanks for using Siri. Fuck you. (laughs) And that is the top five depression era cocktails for our depressive times. Number five, milk punch. That's right. Milk punch, baby. Everybody's favorite uncle's favorite drink. Made with whiskey, brandy, or white lightning, this is an essential here in America's sloshing dairy bucket region. Four ounces straight from the udder, three ounces of the good stuff, a pinch of sister sweetness, and three valuable drops of vanilla. Don't forget the nutmeg for a quenching post-harvest gulp. (laughs) (laughs) Number four. Taft's Tub Punch. Uh, Stuck in a tight spot, like our former president, Taft's Tub Punch will loosen you free. Uh, Made of Cincinnati's best German wood alcohol spirits, dulled with just enough fruit and black tea so you don't vomit on first contact. Taft's Tub Punch, it'll get you out of a tight spot. (laughs) Number three, the Wild Turkey. Uh, This will return you to the gambling glory days of gutter ball in the roaring 20s before the family was allowed. The recipe is simple. During your third frame on the lanes, order three balls full of your favorite paint thinner cut just enough with maple (laughs) syrup and a little water from the well next to the butcher shop for the effective amount of funk. Each bowling ball of forbidden booze should knock you over clean and leave you open to suggestions for your next one. Number two. 
the old back in a jiffy, aka the tri-stater. This is you go up for a pint of whiskey and a pack of cigarettes, and you just never go back. Okay, uh, <laughs> number one, the marble tuxedo. Oh, that sounds nice, right? Starts mm. with an old rusty pail, a liberal mixture of everything your dead grandma has in the back of the cabinet, alcohol made out of orange peel, tequila with a production hiccup, vodka kept in an old spam can, beer that's been chewed into by a family of desperate alcoholic mice, dump in two old bananas, and mix with a dirty spoon, and chug down in front of your in-laws. The marble tuxedo, it will get you there. Class dismissed. That means... <laughs> That means it's time for my fast five, which is going to be full of a lot of words. <laughs> As they so, normally are. I mean, so would... strap in. Uh, this is the top five unmade sequels as described by Variety magazine. For those of you unfamiliar with Variety is a trade paper in Hollywood famous for its headlinees or slanguage, which incorporates various slang and abbreviations to cram as much information into the headlines as possible. This led to the creation of such well-known terms as showbiz. The most famous example came from a story in 1935, which detailed how audiences from rural areas were unsatisfied by the portrayals of rural life in Hollywood films. The headline read, Sticks, Nicks, Hick Picks. (laughs) So, here are five unmade sequels to famous film franchises that Variety had summarized, but sadly never had the chance to print. Number five, Star Wars episode whatever. Luke Skywalker has retired to live the quiet life on Tatooine, where he spends most of the time in his kitchen trying to replicate recipes from his favorite TV program, The Great British Bake Off. (laughs) Imperial espionage, espionage units track him down and are able to steal his lightsaber. Ever resourceful, Skywalker uses the force to propel his fresh pastries into their approaching TIE fighters to win the day. Or, as Variety put it, Sky guys pies fly sky high, spies cry. (laughs) (laughs) And number four, we have the aborted Matt Damon vehicle, the Bourne Redundancy. (laughs) An unearthed draft of this unmade entry into the Jason Bourne series sees the recently retired secret agent blissfully enjoying solitude while learning to play the saxophone. An international security crisis brings him out of retirement to once again save the day, but his instrument is the only thing to bring him peace of mind, so he can't bring himself to leave it at home. And in the final mission, nefarious terrorists, terrorists break the saxophone in two. Dejected, Bourne takes up the solitary sport of corn husking to ease his pain. Or, as Variety put it, Forlorn Bourne mourns torn horn with shorn corn. <laughs> And number three, The Godfather Part 4. The tepid response to The Godfather Part 3 ensured that Coppola's planned fourth installment would never make it out of development hell. The script focused on the minor character of Michael Corleone's son, Anthony. With the criminal empire in ruins, he has gone straight with a family pasta business, but without the underhanded tactics of his ancestors, he faces financial ruin and cannot support his young daughter's interest in equestrian show jumping. He turns back to a life of crime and enters the black market of counterfeit PlayStation video game consoles. Or, as Variety put it, Corleone crony Tony's macaroni is baloney, sells phony Sony's to buy pony. (laughs) (laughs) And number two, Harry Potter number eight. This unmade entry in the series finds a middle-aged Harry who has grown disillusioned with magic and wants to live a simple Spartan life in the muggle world and pursue his newfound hobby of writing spec scripts for late 1970s American TV shows. (laughs) (laughs) 
Is that it? His, That's great. I love it. His, his offspring, Lily, has devoted a, uh, has developed a penchant for raising semi-aquatic mammals. Harry has moved them into a dilapidated house with barely any heat or amenities, and Lily is forbidden to use magic to provide a habitat for her pets. When she breaks the rule, Harry is annoyed, but uses the incident as material for one of his spec episodes. Or as Variety put it, Potter's daughter makes water hotter for Otter. Harry Cotter uses fodder for Welcome Back Cotter. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. Wow. And uh, oh then God. we have number one. This is a James Bond flick. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> We're uh, ready. We're ready. Okay. Yeah. Bond attends an international cooking festival and falls in love with the beautiful Canadian chef who wins for her delectable duck confit. He whisks her away to his home in the Scottish Highlands, where her driving skills are called into question. When the sinister, sinister Spectre agents arrive at Skyfall to attack Bond, his lady love tries to make escape in an all-terrain vehicle, only to get caught in the mud and run over Bond's prized stag. However, true love wins the day, and the notorious womanizer settles down with his new companion. Or, as Variety put it, Bond plucks Canuck for duck, Canuck sucks with truck, hits buck and muck, bad luck, but together they are stuck because she's a real good cook. <laughs> uh, here we go with my Fast Five top five scarring Halloween costumes to see on your loved ones. Number five. Seeing your dad in a male plug costume when your mom dresses as an outlet. Like, come on, we don't need the reminders. As far as I'm concerned, my sister and I believe you two have only had sex twice and we want to keep it that way. Ugh. Number four, seeing Uncle Greg's bulge in his two sizes, two small Spider-Man costume. First off, Greg, the mask doesn't cover your double chin. Uh, the top shirt is boycotting the pants with a beer belly barrier, and I didn't think Spider-Man wore capris. All right, seeing Superbad years later would finally provide the analogy of a division sign that you were looking for to describe this bulge monstrosity, you know, ball, dick, ball. And poor Uncle Greg, all potatoes, no meat. Sorry, Aunt Carol. <laughs> Number three. That time your sister wore a convincing clown getup. Now, you know it's your sister, but there is just something about the emotionless expression on her face after she consumed too much sugar. The makeup was just runny enough to etch the face of this terrifying despair in your memory. And this is the face that you'll see in the shadows, under your bed and behind doors well into your adulthood. Oh, fuck, that year did a number on me. All right, number two. <laughs> Your friend's mom in a detailed yet non-sexual getup. There's nothing scary about this, but this is the moment you realize you won't ever care about anything as much as she cared about making that costume. You're only seven, and you know it's all downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> Number one, your hot cousin in a cleavage-heavy little red riding hood costume. I'm sorry, did, did I, oh, sorry, did I say hot? 
<laughs> I meant I meant seeing her in a nurse and in, in nursing rhyme type thing. Sorry, not nursing, nursery rhyme. It's not like you, you you know she's your cousin, but you're just worried that like she wouldn't, you know, like she'd be flaunting it out there and you're like, you know, you know how guys are. And it's just like you're the good guy here. You're just trying to look out. And I'm just I'm so confused. Is this is what therapy's for? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe this is normal. This is normal. I, oh God, what if I'm not normal? Is this the sort of something serious, long-term shit? First, is this then? Uh, wait, is this when candy loses its taste? Wait, I still like candy. Twix is my favorite. I got a lot of Twix. Yeah, I'm gonna eat this whole bag of Twix. Twix makes everything okay. <laughs> and that is the Fast Five <laughs> costumes that scarred your childhood. And now it's time for the Fast Five. And that Fast Five today is top five furnitures to back your ass into. <laughs> Number five. The Yingvar bar stool from Ikea. This sleek bar beauty is made of anthracite. It's the perfect post-up spot during a party. Okay, it's 9.30 p.m. You're trapped on the patio as Marcus keeps going on and on about how conflicted he is about football coming back. But really, his Saturdays are brightened so much by Indiana Hoosier football that he tries not to think about the ramifications. And all your mind is doing is questioning why you chose the super set of lunges you did earlier today in your kitchen as your keister keeps yelping for relief. The Yingvar comes in handy with a four-foot sturdy base to lean against and massage Way that lunge pain. With a half moonular back support as well, you can knead your upper glutes simultaneously. This is competitively priced at $119. Number four, the Jules Dropleaf Expandable Dining Table by West Elm. Designed with small spaces in mind, the Jules Dropleaf Table seats two when its panels are down and four when they're fully extended. Its durable top is made of solid mango wood and set on architectural metal base. Beautiful round shape features a pleasing dining area for you and you or you and your partner and your imaginary dinner guests who won't order Chinese for the third time in a week. It's been so much so recently that you're beginning to forget which leftovers to eat first out of the fridge. And you're really trying to recycle all that takeout containers, but washing them has become a siren song for your declining health. <laughs> But when you pop down the leaf on this mango wood beauty, the perfect sharp edge appears to soothe away the couch swords you've developed because you had judged it a good idea to torture yourself with the saccharine science fiction of the West Wing. Sustainably sourced wood, fair trade, and contract grade. The jewels is competitively priced at $499. Number three. The Float Adjustable Standing Desk by Room and Board. Made in New Jersey by Human Scale. This modern height adjustable standing desk lets you easily alternate between sitting and standing throughout your workday. Oh! Slowly bring your backside back to life with deep tissue massage on the corner of your desk as you blankly stare at the wall opposite your workspace. Never sure why or how the black and white picture of the Chicago skyline with just the Sears Tower in color made its way in here. Did you buy this? Did he buy this? Did they buy this? Who buys this? Well, you do, and that's the problem. But don't worry when you're bent over holding your knees as you gulp for medicinal air trying to work through the anxiety. The float adjustable standing desk moves quickly and quietly without electric motors or cranks. So your keister need can continue unimpeded. Your ass deserves to be stress-free at least, doesn't it? Competitively priced at $2,499. Number two. Wow. Ethan Allen's square concrete fire table set a soothing, tranquil mood in any outdoor space with this sleek, low-profile square fire table. Sit on fire's edge as the flames lick your being, desperately trying to warm your cold heart during those uneven times. Take advantage of the natural beach stone edge and really get at that knot in your high hammy or lower glute as you turn your back to the flames, silhouetting yourself to hide the tears from your family as they surf Instagram for their next dopamine spike, never staring into the flames contemplating how immense and very small it all seems right now. 
The knots are almost gone as you begin to roast a marshmallow over the flames before your 12-year-old tells you that the Ethan Allen Square Concrete Fire Table isn't meant for that. On sale and competitively priced at $3,825. And number one on the top five furnitures to back your ass into is the Broar utility cart from Ikea. Heavy duty, our way. A sturdy storage system that withstands moisture, dirt, and heavy loads. Push your Broar utility cart to all parts of your property to spice up your drinking life again. It's pine plywood top is moisture resistant, so no rush to clean up that mess after knocking your light beer over when you've locked the wheels in place and are going ham on that backside of yours, knowing if you can loosen the glute, your back should unstiffen too. Large enough to facilitate a full bar with mixing utensils for when you want to enjoy a fresh Manhattan in the garage, a gimlet on the boulevard, and an old-fashioned smack dab in the middle of the living room all in under 45 minutes. Its rubberized heavy-duty heavy duty wheels can handle any bumps, like the one when you're pushing your cart back to the great outdoors as your family refuses to engage in conversation through talking, which your kids are saying is an outdated, embarrassing, and annoying-like thing. So lock those wheels into place and push the broar up against the wood pile. Lean into that dairy air sore spot and start your amateur hatchet-throwing career by aiming at the potting table hutch from Wayfair that you just had to have last summer that now only holds spiders and old basketballs. <laughs> competitively priced at $99. I have to give you my fast five of the top five presidential election what-ifs. Mm -hmm. Elections change the course of history. Now let's look at five instances where things might have turned out very differently had the election gone the other way. 1828, Andrew Jackson versus John Quincy Adams. Get ready for some lighthearted comedy, boys. <laughs> <laughs> This election campaign was full of mudslinging and incumbent Adams lost to challenger Jackson. But what if he had managed to hold on to the presidency and we would have avoided Jackson's disastrous trail of tears that relocated vast populations of Native Americans and resulted in the deaths of at least 10,000 lives? 1856. <laughs> uh, Millard Fillmore versus James Buchanan versus John Fremont. Incumbent Fillmore wasn't cutting it, but Buchanan fared no better in office. But maybe voters should have given John C. Fremont a chance, and we could have had avoided Buchanan and Fillmore's inaction as the nation headed towards a civil war, which resulted in 600,000 deaths. Number three. <laughs> Death of Franklin Roosevelt, 1945. Not an election, but what if? One of America's greatest leaders had survived through the end of World War II. Maybe if he had stayed in charge, the war could have ended more peacefully and a truce could have been reached with Japan. And maybe we would have avoided Truman's decision to drop the atomic bombs on Japan, resulting in 100,000 deaths. Number two, 1968, Nixon versus Boy. Hubert H. Humphrey. What if incumbent Vice President Humphrey had been elected and the nation could have avoided the pain of the Watergate scandal and maybe, just maybe, pulled out of the U.S. war with Vietnam earlier, saving thousands and thousands and thousands of lives? Number one, 2000, Bush v. Gore. The closest election of all time. What if Gore had been elected and we wouldn't have invaded Iraq on the false premise of weapons of mass destruction, getting bogged down in a quagmire of a war that cost 200,000 lives? This shit's important, people. Get these goddamn things right. It's life or death. That leaves us with the Fast Five. And that is the top five presidential election concession limericks. 
One of the great pillars of our democracy has always been the peaceful transition of power from one administration to the next, and the seal of trust between the two parties is traditionally sealed by the loser of the election delivering a concession speech, which is required by a little-known clause in the Constitution to be stated in limerick form. And here's not just five. We have five legal limericks and then one illegal one that arrived after midnight. But I don't (laughs) want to deprive you of this, so you're going to get all of them. Number five. 1992, George Herbert Walker Bush conceding to William Jefferson Clinton. I didn't get two terms, just one. Lost to a man whose morals are none. Now that I'm done, with interns he'll have fun. But in eight years, you'll be stuck with my son. <laughs> that's a, that's, I'm, I'm not missing that applause line. Let's, let's give him some. Yeah, that's great. Bravo. Number four, 2012, Mitt Romney concedes to Barack Obama. I won Massachusetts, but don't want to live here. Utah's more my state because my skin's clear. Binders full of women. I won't support Yemen. I guess I'll go not drink a beer. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow. That's another. Thank you. That's job. fantastic. You, you must be wearing your magical underwear today. That was, you nailed that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number three is Aaron Burr. All that I ever did was wait. All it ever made me was late. Revolution I sought, but it's just about who I shot. Millennials will hate me. Just great. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Number two from 1860, John C. Breckinridge conceding to Abraham Lincoln. Mr. Lincoln, they say I'm no leader, and in this campaign you were on a real heater. But take my advice, never pay full price to sit in box seats at the theater. Oh, oh. Woo. fortuitous. That's, that's Don't touch that one. That's, that's, that, that's another applause for me. This is great. This is great. Number one, 1996, Bob Dole conceding to Clinton. Oh, yes. I underperformed in the election. The voters won't give me affection. They say Bill loves the ladies, but soon they will pay me to sell pills that give me an erection. <laughs> Well done. Yes. Well done. And, then, and then, uh, then our illegal entry that arrived after midnight, but the, it was postmarked on election day. So we're going to go ahead and read it out. I mixed soul music with passion, sold white shirts for much cashian. I released Jesus. I think that I'm Jesus, but really I'm Mr. Kardashian. <laughs> we cannot leave today without revealing my fast five top projected 70s cop shows it was the 70s and they should have known better but they didn't number five sleaze in the squeeze <laughs> uh, no you don't even have to describe it you can just move on <laughs> I like that. Oh, it's like, God, I have to say this now. Oh, shit. So why did I write this? Oh, crap. (laughs) Known to the precinct as Mike the Sleaze, a take your wife to work day goes south as Mike's main squeeze has a better knack for solving crime than her ball and chain. Hitting the street is sleaze and squeeze. Crime ain't got nothing on matrimony. Moving on to number four. This is McDonald and Cat. Frank McDonald was a no-nonsense detective. Catherine was his partner. 
and a woman. And he couldn't take her antics of having her own opinion and being independent. So he wished she would just go away. Unfortunately, Frank made his wish at midnight. And now Cat is a cat. McDonald and Cat. There's no stopping partners with nine lives. (laughs) (laughs) Number three, Girls in Blue. Girls in Blue was a great concept promoting female empowerment, but a trifle of studio notes and male execs turned this failed show into models with guns and no plot. A Charlie's Angels ripoff featuring an all-female police staff, the scantily clad crime fighters of Danger Beach, California, want to just do their job. But crime is up as their high heels sink into the sand, leaving DBPD with no arrests and uneven tan lines. A 1976 TV guide review of the pilot simply printed the word misogyny 500 times. Zero stars and eight (laughs) thumbs down. Number two. (laughs) Bulletproof face. (laughs) 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 After after falling into a vat of steel, superhuman Rip Scarth emerged from the molten material relatively unscathed, but the steel became a part of him, leaving the man with a bulletproof face. This action-packed piece of garbage just showed bullets ricocheting off a Rip's face in every scene. What sounded so cool on paper was an overpriced comic book ripoff based on the back of a cereal box. Number one. Wow. Fitzgerald and the Slam Piece. Pete Fitzgerald is a Chicago cop His partner, Mary Winkle, is hot He wants to bang her, but he's an asshole So Fitzgerald can't get his slam piece So instead, he slams his piece on the captain's desk And he quits Fitzgerald and the slam piece A man with a small penis quits the force in the pilot Because his female co-worker won't sleep with him Classic 70s. (laughs) (laughs) And now, folks, uh, it is time for the Fast Five. Now, this is inspired by the NBA draft that just occurred this past week where my beloved Timberwolves had the first selection, and they took Anthony Edwards, number one. So we'll be in the finals within two seasons or less, probably. Asterisk, don't hold me to it, but hope, hope to God. Here we go. My Fast Five top five turkey pardon prospects of 2020. Here we go. Number five is Stefina T. Gobbleman. This bird comes from an impressive line of foul. Born to Cornell Drumstick Gobbleman and Briny Fry Gobbleman, Nay Flapperstein, in a suburb of Richmond, Virginia. This bird was top of her flock at Rockwell Country Day, where she achieved high marks in plumpness, feathering, and gobble carry. She now works in PR for Martha Stewart Living Magazine. Number four on the big board is Flyer Moist the Third. His grandfather was spared at the great pardoning of 2006 by then Commander in chief George W. Bush. He shares a similar fiery temperament to his grandfather, as was on display when Bush attempted to get, excuse me, when Bush attempted to pet his granddaddy. He'd love to one day reach the treetops, but if not, he's perfectly happy being the cock of the walk in his turkey barn while sporting his considerably sized snood just over five inches. A real pedigree here, folks, but perhaps a little too much smoke has been blown up this bird's backside. Number three on my big board. 
Turkey Pardon Prospects is Carlo Rossi. He's the last offspring of the 2013 runner-up pair of Pardon Prospects, Booze and More Booze. Carlo Rossi comes in with a ne'er-do-well attitude, folks. Banking on his ability to have a great time, Rossi is hoping his personality and custom turkey sunglasses he got made for him by Warby Parker's new foul line will be enough to punch his ticket for a spot at Wellston's Turkey Reserve in Knollcrest, Virginia. Look for Carlo Rossi to attempt blackout Wednesday coercion on the decision makers. His secret weapon, he says, after all the wine is gone, shots of wild turkey. Boy, is that on the smooth. <laughs> Number two in the turkey pardon prospect rankings, of course, is pumpkin pea cranberry. Yes, that pumpkin pea. And don't ask what the pea stands for. Another high-level, blue-blooded Thanksgiving royalty pedigree with this prospect. Pumpkin is incredibly sensitive about his middle initial and really, really don't ask about it. Please don't. The militantly secretive <laughs> pumpkin pea has a team of handlers that have shaped his image and delivered him to this crucial stage in his gobbling career. Previously considered just a pop star turkey, Pumpkin P. Again, do not ask what it stands for. Pumpkin has moved into a more relaxed retro era with his music and is really trying to blow the turkey stand, if you will, and get out of the crosshairs of the mainstream American public. He's disavowed his 2018 release, brining and banging in a large swing towards a more conservative mindset. This pardon prospect has created a lot of headlines for the public to gobble up. Okay. <laughs> and number one on Mitch Brinkman's big board of turkey pardon prospects is the consensus number one pick. The GOAT himself, the future Butterball Roastington. The consensus number one pick in this year's rankings, Butterball Roastington, butter to his close toms, was raised deep in the heart of turkey country in Todd County, Minnesota. Measuring in at 48 inches tall, seven and a half inch talons with a wingspan of 63 inches, this turkey just won't quit. He still holds the Minnesota State domestic turkey flight record of 2.7 seconds. His inner cavity is estimated to fit two loaves worth of stuffing, Wow, this Tom is dripping with potential. Delicious butter-bathed potential. Recruited to all the top farms before reaching puberty, turkey scouts could see the potential in his snood. Roastington boasts breasts that could feed an entire offensive line. Hopefully, he'll be chosen to live at his days in Nolcrest, working to set every geriatric turkey record and sight. So stay tuned to Thanksgiving morning. We find out which turkeys will be chosen for eternal glory the top five depressing unmade Christmas sequels. <laughs> yeah. Number five, Elf 2, The Elfening. <laughs> <laughs> Buddy the Elf's success in finding a life away from the North Pole leads to an awakening among the actual elves who understand they are at best low-paid factory workers and more likely indentured servants. Pom Pom the Elf, Buddy's old friend who you may remember from the first movie, leads the elves to unionize. When Santa threatens to outsource the work to China, the elves walk and head to New York and get jobs in the financial sector. Santa is unable to meet the high demands, and one third of the world's children go without presents. Oh my God. <laughs> Number four. Awesome. Miracle on 35th Street. <laughs> following uh, Christmas from the events from the first film, young Susan Walker sees her work as far from over as just up the road from Macy's. Another department store has their own troubled Santa Claus. Well, it's essentially a rehash of the first film, miracles on 36th, 37th, 38th Street, and so on, grow increasingly depressing as Susan grows up and her reputation as a Santa saver grows among the Claus community. Unable to say no to the down-on-their-luck Kris Kringles, 
She attends law school and sets up her own firm defending any drunk, unstable, barely employee, middle-aged fat man with a beard. By miracle on 58th Street, she dreads Christmas and leaves the courtroom on Christmas Eve to spend the night the way she spends every other night during the year, drinking straight whiskey in the tavern across from the courthouse, escaping the stress of her high-powered job through drugs and marital infidelity. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, love it. Number three, it's a more wonderfuler life. As the dust as the dust settles from the events of the beloved original film, George Bailey enjoys a prosperous year at the building and loan thanks to his beloved friends and neighbors bailing him out. Mr. Potter himself even repents, apologizing to George from his deathbed. But by the next Christmas, George finds the people of the town are all leaning on him for support more than ever. We all recall his impassioned speech when the stock market crashed. Uh, your, your money's not here. It's, it's in Fred's house and, and Bill's house and a hundred others. Well, now they know where all their money is. It's in George's house. George finds his finances slowly seeping away again as he privately bails Mr. Martini and Bert the cop out of some bad investments. And even worse, realizes he has to walk around town the rest of his life with everyone knowing he owes them a favor. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, Home Alone 2 Lost in New York Revisited. The... (laughs) The creators of the Home Alone franchise regretted carrying on without Macaulay Culkin and tried to retcon their way out of the films onward and rebooted the franchise with an adult Kevin McAllister returning to New York for Christmas nearly three decades later. This one actually got made, but was thought too dark to be released, and I was one of the lucky few who got my hands on a copy. Uh, So Kevin is horrified to learn that the kindly old man who helped give him directions when he was lost in the Plaza Hotel has developed an insatiable lust for power and has somehow conned his way into being elected president of the United States, where his unbashed corruption doesn't stop even after an impeachment. And when he finally loses the election, he spouts baseless claims of voter fraud and a desperate attempt to keep power in order to provide prosecution once he leaves office, leaving the very fabric of American democracy in peril. Wait, no, sorry. I was just watching the news. Never mind. Okay. (laughs) Number one, A Christmas Carol, part two. The ult- I can't even remember what I wrote for this. I hope it's good. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. The ultimate classic Christmas tale has been beloved since the 1800s, and Charles Dickens' tale of Scrooge's redemption has been adapted thousands of times in every medium, so you would think the studios would have known to leave well enough alone. But in the early 2000s, M. Night Shyamalan was the hottest young director in Hollywood, and executives thought his penchant for spooky storytelling and twist endings would be the perfect fit to extend the holiday tale. The end result was much more grim. It all starts off well enough with an elderly Scrooge providing means for Tiny Tim to receive health care to recover from his illness, growing into a strong, robust teen. Eventually, Scrooge provides Tim with an apprenticeship at a butcher's shop in the East End. When Scrooge finally passes on, he leaves his vast wealth to the not-so-tiny Tim, who, at the funeral, comes into contact with many long-lost associates of Scrooge, powerful men with connections to his mysterious Mason-like organization. Tim gets involved with the nefarious characters, using his butcher shop as a front for their illicit drug and prostitution rings, and, well, I'll just cut to the chase. Tiny Tim grows up to be Jack the Ripper. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That was us doing fast fives. That was, uh, cool. you know, if you want to send in your own ideas for fast fives, don't forget to go to bizbear.biz and fill out the form, and we'd be happy to put your ideas in the show uh, with a little of the delicious grease that we add to it. Um, I've been Mitch Brinkman, and my buddies across 
the country have been Nathan Henenfent and Brian Ernst. That's incredible. And as BizBear always says, wave goodbye to 2020 and grab 2021 by the jugular. Tear out its intestines and have a good meal, folks. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Auf Wiedersehen and adios! <laughs> You've just listened to Uber Cinco, a production of UBK Studios. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your fine podcasts from. If you like what you hear and want to support the show, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash UBK Studios. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and the bill collectors at bay. Keep tabs on us on all the social media at UBK Studios, and most importantly, subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can see that we really are just a bunch of good Midwestern boys. Yeah.